Father, we love you. We thank you for bringing us all here this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the fellowship that we have enjoyed already this morning. We thank you for the reading of your word and for the singing of true praise. We thank you now for the opportunity to open your word and to consider it together. We pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us now, that he would help us to understand things that may be difficult for us, that he would conform our wills to yours, that he would give us a, a deep yearning to know Christ through your word, a deep yearning to worship and obey. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. As you're finding your place there, if you would please stand with me. We're going to read verses 5 through 14. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You may be seated. So last week... It may have seemed like we were going way too fast. We, we covered 1.5 through 2.18. This week it may seem like we're going way too slow. Your notes, your notes indicate that we're going to take a closer look at 1.5 through 7. That was the plan. It's too ambitious by two verses. We're going to look at 1.5. I'm sorry, but there's a method to this madness, I, I promise you, and I'll, I'll explain. Do you remember when you were learning long division? For some of you, for some of you, that was a painful thing, and, and I'm sorry to bring it up, but it, the analogy, I believe, will be helpful, and actually, it's going to carry us through this whole, this whole next 45 minutes or so. When you were learning long division, the teacher wanted you to show your work. Even if you could do it in your head, and even if you did have the right answer, she wanted you to show your work. She, she wanted to know how you got that answer, because how you get the answer 
is almost as important as getting the right answer because you can get the right answer by accident. But remember, once, once you mastered long division and you were moving on to higher concepts of math, you didn't have to show your work on long division anymore. You did have to show your work on those newer concepts, but on the old stuff, you didn't have to show your work anymore because she knew you knew how to get there. So sometimes you show your work, sometimes you don't show your work, depending on whether or not she knows that you know how to get the answer correctly. You with me? When it comes to using Old Testament Scripture to make points about Jesus, sometimes the author of Hebrews shows his work, and sometimes he doesn't show his work. That is, sometimes he explains the connections on how he can apply an Old Testament passage to Jesus, and sometimes he doesn't explain how he can apply an Old Testament passage to Jesus. For example, with his teaching on Melchizedek, he shows his work. Early in chapter 5, he quotes Psalm 110.4, which reads, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And he says essentially, that's talking about Jesus. And then he takes almost all of chapter 7 to show his work, to show how he can apply Psalm 110.4 to Jesus. On the other hand, Sometimes he doesn't show his work, like in what we just read in chapter, chapter 1. As the author contends that Jesus is greater than the angels, he just quotes Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage, applies them to Jesus, and doesn't explain at all how he can apply them to Jesus. Why? Why does he show his work in some places, and in other places he doesn't show his work? Well, we get an answer to that question, a clue at least, in chapter 5. Because just before he starts to show his work with that Psalm 110 reference to, to Melchizedek. In fact, you might, you might turn over to Psalm, uh, or chapter 5 with me. Chapter 5, verse 11. He's just quoted one, Psalm 110.4. And in 5.11, he writes about this, and, and he means about Christ's connection to Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And basically here in chapter 5, the author is saying, look, I'm about to show you my work on Melchizedek. I shouldn't have to. I should be able to just quote Psalm 110.4 and apply it to Jesus and move on like I've done earlier in, in the letter here. But I do have to show my work because you're unskilled in the word of righteousness. You're still doing lower level biblical math. And if I don't show my work here, you won't have any clue how I'm getting from Melchizedek in Psalm 110.4 to Jesus. So I'm going to show you my work. And then he shows his work in chapter 7. And that whole Melchizedekian interlude indicates that when the author of Hebrews shows his work, it's because he knows that his original authors don't know the math yet. And what we can infer is that in those places where he doesn't show his work, it's because he knows his original readers already do know the math. 
And that's the case through all of chapter 1. He rattles through, in chapter 1, he rattles through these seven Old Testament quotations. He explains nothing. He applies it all to Jesus. No work shown. And he, he shows no work because he knows that his original readers know that math. Well, the problem for us is that many, if not most of us, we don't know that math. And so consequently, some of us, we, we might go to some of these Old Testament passage, passages and we would never apply these to Jesus. We need to understand though that when the author of Hebrews doesn't show his work, it is not that he is just willy-nilly finding random Old Testament passages and applying them to Jesus. Keep in mind, his original audience, he's writing to people who are in varying degrees of temptation to abandon the faith in favor of returning to Old Covenant Judaism. And so if he cites Old Testament passages and, and uses them in ways unfaithful to their original Old Testament context, his case that Jesus is better isn't going to fly with anyone. And if he did that, he would be handing them an additional reason to abandon the faith. And so, where he needs to show them his work, he carefully shows them his work. Where he doesn't need to show his work, it's because they already know the math. They already know how he's getting from that Old Testament passage to Jesus. And now think about this. If he lovingly chides them in chapter 5, saying, look, you, re you guys, you really should already know this Melchizedek math. I shouldn't need to show my work. The fact that we don't know the connections in chapter 1 between the Old Testament and Jesus, that means that we may be lower level students of the Bible than the original readers. But the good news is that's fixable. So, as we're considering how the Son is superior to the angels, which is the whole point of this first chapter here, we are also going to be considering how is the author able to apply these Old Testament references to Jesus? In other words, we're going to do the math that the author was able to assume with his original reader. And the reason that we're only going to look at one verse this morning is because the math behind verse 5 is the longest. The things... Things are likely going to go much quick, more quickly in the rest of the chapter. But taking the time to learn the math behind verse 5, it's going to serve us well because this math comes up regularly in the book of Hebrews. All right, So, so if we're patient this morning and we spend a little bit of extra time in verse 5 learning this math, it's going to pay dividends going forward. And going forward, I'll be able to say, hey, you remember that math in 1-5 and That'll be shorthand and we'll all remember it and we'll say, yeah, we know that. We know how he gets from these verses to Jesus and we won't have to do it again, right? So here's the big idea. Here's the big idea. Jesus is superior to the angels because he is the Son. He is the Son. So look again with me, verse 5. The author writes, For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or, again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, the first word of verse 5 indicates that this whole section, everything from verse 5 to verse 14, is an explanation of verse 4 that we looked at earlier. Verse 4, 
There the author said, The Son has become better than the angels in that He has inherited a more excellent name than theirs. And so then verse 5 starts explaining that. And verse 5 takes the form of, of of a rhetorical question. To which of the angels has God ever said, You are my Son? And of course the implied answer is, to none. He's never said that to any of the angels. Now this could be puzzling if we know the, the Old Testament well because quite often the angels are referred to as sons of God. So how can he say this? How can the author of Hebrews say, God has, God has never said to, to anybody but Jesus, you are my son. Because by these specific Old Testament references, He's indicating that he's referring to a particular son, the promised son of David. And that's the answer to the math problem, all right? So if you're taking, taking notes, you might think of it, this is the answer to the math problem. The answer is the promised son of David. And that's the shared math that, that the author of Hebrews has with his original recipients. They know what he means by these references. He's talking about the son of David. Not just any son, and, and not sons of God in the generic sense that, that, that the angels are referred to all the time in the Old Testament. The fact that he shows no work here demonstrates that among these early Christians, it is no-brainer biblical math that these Old Testament passages promise a son of David and that Jesus is that son of David. Now most of us, we may need to look at the notes in our Bibles to even know where these quotations come from. But, but for the original readers, these Old Testament, Old Testament quotations, these are kind of like John 3.16. Everybody knows where these come from. They know that this is, this is 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. And they all knew the math surrounding them, understanding that the author's point is that Jesus is the son of David. He's the answer not only to that promise to David, but they understand the further math that we're going to get into, which is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises going all the way back to Genesis 3. Alright? The first quotation, again, comes from Psalm 2. So, before we get into this math, we'll, we'll look at Psalm 2 a little bit in its context. So, turn with me to Psalm 2, if you would. Acts 4.24 tells us that David wrote Psalm 2. And I just want us to look at Psalm 2.7 itself initially which David wrote in Psalm 2, 7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And if we were reading this without any knowledge of all the math behind it, that is if we were not familiar with the biblical theological context, we would likely say, David is saying, the Lord said to me, the Lord said to David, you're my son, today I've begotten you. You might hold your finger there. You're, you're going to need several fingers, by the way. You might hold your finger there. Glance back at Hebrews 1.5. Look at that second quotation. Actually, that was, that was the second quotation. No, that was the first. Look at the second. I'll be to him a father. He'll be a son to me. That comes from 2 Samuel 7.14. So let's go to 2 Samuel 7. And of course, many of us will know that this is where God makes a promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to read a few verses here, beginning in verse 12. 2 Samuel 7, 12. The Lord says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and he will establish, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Again, if we didn't know all the math, we would likely take this as a promise regarding the birth and reign of Solomon. And yet, the author of Hebrews quotes both Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 and says, these are referring to Jesus. Now how can he do that? Again, it's because he is familiar with a level of math, biblical math, that we, that we may not be. We may not be. Some of us may be, but others may not. So, so we're going to spend some time now doing that math. And I'm going to give you some, some things to write down, okay? So we've already written down the answer. The answer is the son of David. Jesus is the son of David. So I'm going to give you some other things to write down as we go along, okay? And I'll tell you as when we get there what, what you can write down to work our way through this math problem. God, God, God is presented many times in Scripture as a king. We, we opened this morning with Psalm 97. That's one of those places. We, we saw another one this morning. Isaiah 6 referred to Yahweh as the king. The first verse of Psalm 97, Yahweh is king. You can write that down in your math problem. Yahweh is king. It's a first step. Yahweh is king. And God created man in His image to reign over the creation as His representative. If we were to turn over to Genesis 1, 26-28, we would find there God assigning man to reign as His representative. The verbs used of man's responsibility in Genesis 1, 26-28, these are verbs having dominion, subduing the earth. These are verbs used throughout the rest of the Old Testament of kings reigning over kingdoms, indicating that man is going to reign as a representative king over creation. So the next thing you can write down is creation, colon, man as representative king. This is essentially how, how Adam is depicted in the garden. He, he is like a king over the earth, reigning as a representative of God. And this is what you and I were designed to do. We were designed to have dominion over the earth, ruling creation as representatives of God, enjoying unfettered fellowship with God. Of course, we, we, we spend a lot of time in Genesis 3 around here, and what we find there is that, that man rebelled against God. Man didn't, didn't want to reign as God's representative, but wanted to go his own way, and what happened? As a result of man's rebellion, he was banished from God's presence in the garden. And later Scripture describes man as then being imprisoned or enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. And these could be thought of as the great enemies of God. And So the next thing that you could write down is fall, colon, man as deposed king. Fall, man as deposed king. Let's pause for just a moment to think about this in personal terms. When we talk about Adam, we are talking about a historical figure. But more importantly, personally, we're talking about our first father. His fall affected each of us personally. And the fall is why each of us have found ourselves with naturally rebellious hearts. Mired in sin, our, our bodies decaying, our minds and hearts self-centered and, and darkened and wanting to rule our own little kingdom. 
Every one of us have personally felt the weight of what happened in Eden. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the implied question in Genesis 3 then is, has God's plan been destroyed? Is what God intended ever going to happen? Is man doomed to languish in sin and death under the control of the evil one outside of the presence of God? Is, is there any way that man can be redeemed and, and once again reign over God's creation as God's representative in God's fellowship? Well, toward, toward the middle of Genesis chapter 3, we find that all is not lost. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that is cryptic to say the least, but as we move through the storyline of Scripture, we, we get information that, 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 that colors our understanding of that verse. God puts enmity between the serpent and the woman, Eve, and between their respective offspring or seeds. And implied is that through the defeat of the serpent, who is representative of all God's enemies, through the defeat of God's enemies, man is going to be restored. So the next thing you could write down is Genesis 3.15 colon promise of restoration. There's a promise of restoration in Genesis 3.15. And from that moment forward, there is this struggle that goes on between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman between those who are under the power of the evil one and those who trust in God. And the first iteration of of this struggle happens in the very next chapter between Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Cain kills Abel. And if we go to the New Testament, we find that Jews read the Old Testament through the lens of this struggle of the seeds. 1 John 3.12 says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and killed his brother. Genesis 4, that struggle between Cain and Abel, we pick up in the midst of that struggle that the people, they're looking for a singular seed. They're looking for a a person. Who is going to save us? Who's going to defeat the enemies of God and His people? You get that same expectation expectation just a chapter later in Genesis 5.29 when Noah is born, his, his, father, his father hopes maybe this one is going to be the one who's going to bring us relief. They're looking for, for a seed. You fast forward a little bit to Genesis chapter 12 and God singles out one family who's going to be the family of faith through whom that singular seed of the woman is going to come. Genesis chapter 12, then Genesis chapter 17, as God is reiterating that promise to Abraham, He says, kings will come from you. And so there's that hope of return to dominion over creation as God's representatives in fellowship with Him. So the next thing that you might write in your, in your working out of this math is Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, restoration through Abraham, specifically through the family of Abraham, that this seed is going to come. We jump forward still further in Genesis. Genesis 49.10, we find that Abraham's grandson, Jacob, he's about to die and he is blessing his sons just before he dies. And he says this to one of his sons, Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience 
of the peoples. And so we find that a singular king is going to come from a particular tribe in that one family, a particular tribe, Judah, one king is going to bring about the return of dominion. Jump forward a bit further, we find God's revelation progressing even more. And interestingly, this time it comes through the mouth of a pagan prophet. Balaam prophesies in Numbers 24-17 that a king will rise out of, out of Israel and crush the heads of God's enemies. That is Genesis 3.15 language again. It's funneling down now again to a singular king, the seed of the woman, who will defeat God's enemies, will come through Abraham's family and through the tribe of Judah. So the next thing that you can write down as we're working out our math is Genesis 49, Numbers 24, restoration through a king of Judah. Restoration through a king of Judah. So you see, long before we ever get to 2 Samuel 7, the Scriptures have poised us to look for a singular king who will be the seed of Abraham, who will be the seed of the woman, conquering the enemies of God. And eventually we get to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. And it's obvious from word one, Saul is not that king. He's, he's sinful. And by this time in the narrative, sin is the obvious great enemy of the people of God. They need a righteous king to lead them in righteousness to, de- to defeat this great enemy. Then we get to David. David. Is David that king? This one who's called the anointed of God, who, who God, God identifies as a man after his own heart. Is it him? Well, no, it's not even him. Because b- before we even get to David's failure with Bathsheba, it's obvious that David is not that big king because in 2 Samuel 7, again, which, which we have read from this morning, it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises a seed to David. So let's go back to 2 Samuel 7, where God promises a son to David. A key part of this promise is that God will establish a throne of David's son eternally look at look at the end of second samuel 7:16 the lord says your throne shall be established forever okay now all all of this prior biblical revelation from genesis up through second samuel all of this is math that's contained in the original context of second samuel 7 before we ever get to hebrews so the original reader the Old Testament reader of 2 Samuel 7 had to ask, is then Solomon the seed of the woman, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and the promise to David? Is Solomon the one to whom God would, would, would say, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me? Is, is Solomon the one that, that God is in a sense going to adopt as his own? Is Solomon the one who would subdue the earth and defeat all of God's enemies, sin, death, and the evil one, leading to man's reigning over creation and restored fellowship with God. Well, we could say that perhaps in an immediate sense, Solomon was a fulfillment of this promise in that Solomon did build a house for God, the temple, which facilitated fellowship with God. But Solomon's throne did not last, right? Because as we continue reading the story, we find that 
Solomon's kingdom was divided into two kingdoms. And eventually both of those kingdoms went into exile because of their rebellion, which could be traced directly to Solomon's own wicked idolatry. So this righteous king, whose throne would be eternal, couldn't ultimately be Solomon. Had to be someone else of whom God would say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Which must be why David writes what he writes in Psalm 2. So now, let's go back to Psalm 2. And as as we look at pieces of Psalm 2, let's try to keep all of the foregoing math in mind, okay? We're going to try to keep all of this in mind as, as we go to Psalm 2. This psalm shows... The, the anointed or Messiah King of God defeating the enemies of God and His people. And it uses language from 2 Samuel 7. So it's tied to 2 Samuel 7 linguistically. Now, why would I now begin to use the word Messiah as I talk about, second, as I talk about Psalm 2? Well, look at, look at Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Well, with that, with that last phrase, we, we, we not only get a strong flavor of that Davidic promise, but the, the Hebrew word for anointed is the word Messiah. And, and the Greek version, which is the version used by the author of Hebrews, uses the word Christos. Or translated, we translate the word Christ. Psalm 2 is one of the major texts that moved the Jews to begin to refer to the promised son of David as the Messiah or the Christ. And it reinforced all the previous revelation that this figure would smash all of God's enemies and rule over all. And, and, and you could just scan through the rest of the psalm and see these things. We, we don't have time to read everything, but you could see that this is a figure that's going to destroy all of God's enemies and, and rule over everything. And the ancient, ancient Jewish reader knows this is not Solomon. Knows this isn't David. So who is David writing about? If we read closely, I believe we would have to say that David is writing prophetically about someone else. And there are clues to that end. Let's, let's read some more. Look, look, look down at verses 2 through 9. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now that, that language comes from 2 Samuel 7.14. So David writing this, and the Jews reading this, they all know he's not writing about himself. He's writing from the perspective of his promised heir. It can't be Solomon. And he's taking language directly from 2 Samuel 7.14. Look at verse 8 now. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your, pro- your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It has to be a coming Messiah who will defeat all of God's enemies and reign over all creation because at this point in the history of of Israel, these things have not happened. Now the big clue, the huge clue comes in 2.12. So look down at 2.12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Now, I suggest that this verse not only indicates that David has in mind his future promised son, but a future promised divine son. Why, why would I say that? The last phrase, look at it again, the last phrase of, of Psalm 2.12, all who take refuge in him. That phrase is found numerous times in the Psalms, found all over the Psalms actually, but only in Psalms written by David. Only in Psalms written by David. And every other place that he uses it, he obviously is referring to taking refuge in Yahweh. David would never say, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in me, the man David. Or, blessed is the man who takes refuge in in my son Solomon. For David, Yahweh is a refuge. He says it over and over throughout his Psalms. Yahweh is our refuge. Yahweh is my refuge. And so, here he is saying once again of this Messiah King, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He is consciously prophetically writing about a coming Messiah, Son of David, Son of God, who is Yahweh. He is Yahweh. Yahweh is the refuge in the Psalms. And so now, in your math equation, you might write 2 Samuel 7, and Psalm 2, restoration through a divine Son of David. So we're almost to that answer, right? Restoration through a divine son of David. If we keep reading in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, it it, it is clear this is how later Old Testament authors understood the Davidic promise. They understood the son of David to be a post-exile coming king associated with a new covenant who will defeat all God's enemies and rule over all creation. I want to give you a few references that you can read in your own time and see that this is how the prophets understood the son of David. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, Amos 9, Zechariah 3, Zechariah 6. I'll read all of those again. Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, Amos 9, Zechariah 3, Zechariah 6. These prophets essentially are reading the the Davidic promise the same way that the author of Hebrews does. That is, that this is a coming Messiah. And with these two Old Testament references, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, the author of Hebrews, again, He's not showing any math because with his readers, there's no need to. Both he and they, they know the Old Testament much better than than the modern Westerner. And so so all he does is throw out shorthand references to these Old Testament passages, shorthand references containing a small world of assumed math to simply remind them of things they already know to be true. And and knowing the Old Testament much better than the modern Westerner, the author and the original readers understand these references to be an absolute mic drop regarding Jesus Christ. They already know there is no one who fits Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 like Jesus Christ. 
And to say that Jesus is the Son is not merely to say that He has a special, unique relationship with God different than the angels. Rather, what the author of Hebrews is saying and what his original readers understand him to be saying is that He is the answer to all the promises of God. He is the answer to the promise of Genesis 3.15. He is the answer to the promise to Abraham and the promise to David. He is the eternal divine Son. Existed eternally as, as, as the second person of the Trinity. He came down, took on human flesh, and obeyed the Father perfectly for a lifetime. He was delivered up by the hands of the Father into the hands of sinful men who crucified Him. On the cross, He suffered the wrath of God and died for the sins of men. Three days later, the Father raised Him from the dead and He thereby defeated all the enemies of God, sin, death, and the devil. And this is why the resurrected Christ said to His disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. And then this risen King ascended on high and sat down at the right hand of God, whereby the Father announced, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. By the resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Christ, God has said, this, this is my son. He has been vindicated. You are my son to get today I have begotten you. And and all who turn from their sin and trust in Him are reconciled to God and will one day reign with Him over all creation as God originally intended. He is the Son. And there's a world wrapped up in that one little sentence. He is the Son. And you cannot say that about an angel. You can't say that mankind ever waited for an angel to to come and be God keeping His promises, redeeming man from slavery to sin. And death. Now, consider again the author of Hebrews. First of all, he doesn't show the math that these passages promise a coming son of David, Messiah. And second, he makes no argument that this son of David is Jesus. He asserts these things. Why? Because there is no plausible argument to the contrary. And remember, these are people in varying stages of doubt. And he uses zero apologetic arguments to demonstrate Jesus as the Messiah. The absence of math here means two things. First of all, these passages among first century Jews who knew the Bible far better than we do, these passages incontrovertibly refer to a coming Messiah. And second, these people knew the Messiah is Jesus, no arguments necessary to the original argument. The math was so rudimentary as to be unnecessary. Now, keeping in mind that what we have done here this morning is just the first point in a multi-week message and that we'll be returning to the main point of the passage in, in the near future and deriving application from that main point Let's think of a couple of ways that our time this morning could inform our lives. First, certainly we should revel in the fulfillment of all God's promises in Christ. Aren't aren't you glad that God did not leave us in our sin? 
but that He sent the eternal Son to take on flesh, to be the Son of David, endure the cross, and rise again for our salvation. Aren't you glad? Second, consider again why the author was was concerned in chapter 5. Why he was concerned about the necessity to show his work regarding Melchizedek. Remember, it's not just... It's not just that he found it a hassle to have to explain to them how he got from Melchizedek to Jesus, but you may remember this from our very first week in Hebrews. He regarded their lack of facility with the Scriptures to be a warning sign that they were susceptible to falling away from the faith. And that's clear if we follow that train of thought from chapter 5 into chapter 6. Now, what does that mean for us in chapter 1? If we don't understand then the biblical connections in chapter 1, where it wasn't necessary for him to show his work to them, how much more susceptible to the pressure of the world and how much more susceptible to shrinking back from faithful to discipleship to Jesus are we than they were? If we read the New Testament, and we, 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 don't, have, we don't have any clue how the apostles are arriving at the points they're making from the Old Testament, Let us take that as an admonition that we need to press deeper into the Scriptures. As as the the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 6, leaving behind the elementary message of Christ and pressing on to maturity in order that we may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and patience. Let's consider... Where, where are we each individually as, as students of the Scriptures? Should we, just ask this of yourself, should I, should I be doing higher math, so to speak? If the answer is yes, first of all, l- let's not be demoralized. Let's, let's not, but let's just press on. Let's be encouraged to read the Scriptures. To, to read and meditate and memorize and pray and listen. Read consistently every day. Find time. Find time to read large, multi-chapter chunks in one sitting. Read smaller chunks repetitively. Read chronologically. Read thematically. Find someone. Find someone who is further along. Find, Find someone who's doing higher math than you are. Find somebody like that and ask them, would you read with me and help me to make some connections that you're able to make and I'm not? You senior saints, and that doesn't necessarily mean those of you who are, who are actually older, but maybe, maybe you are older in the faith than uh, others. Those of you who have been walking with Jesus a long time, and you are doing that higher math, find somebody who is younger in the faith and ask that person, hey, do you want to read the Bible together? And, and you can be that person who is like the author of Hebrews, showing them, hey, do, do you know how this points to the Lord Jesus Christ? And, and then that person who's younger in the faith can learn from you. And what you may find is that you are also learning from them. Let's, let's all press on in the Word and therefore press on in the perseverance in the faith. And as we... As we Enjoy a time of silence in a few minutes. Let us also just pray that the Holy Spirit 
would reveal to us how he would have us to walk in light of these things. Let's pray. Father, we praise you as the God who makes promises. Many promises. Over and over you make promises. Not small ones, but big promises you have made. And we praise you as the God who delivers on those promises. You have delivered on those promises as we have seen here through the Son of David, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has come. We pray, Father, that, that through just this, this one small piece of math that we've done together this morning, that He would be magnified in our hearts. Whether, whether it's, it's angels or, or world powers that have become inordinately large in our minds and hearts, please magnify Jesus above them. That we worship Him alone. And Father, as some of us have seen this morning, that we are being introduced to biblical concepts beyond our facility with the Scriptures. Lord, please let us not be demoralized, but let us be energized to dig deep into the Scriptures. We pray, Father, that You would move us by Your Holy Spirit to dig deep into Your Word in the privacy of our own homes, in our own bedrooms, in our own kitchens. That we would dig deep, that we would that we would eat Your Word and eat it and digest it more and more all the time. That Your Holy Spirit would teach us Your truth. That, and that we, would, that we would be content not just to, to take in Your Word privately, but that we would want to do it as a community. That we would find other brothers and sisters who are ahead of us in the faith and behind us in the faith. That we might be helped by them and help them to, to dig deeper into the Scriptures. That we might do that higher math of seeing how all things in the Word point to the Lord Jesus. Not just that we, might, that we might know more about Him, but that we might know Him and more strongly and with greater tenacity cling to Him until He comes. Please grant us, Father, to persevere in the faith through the means of being committed students of Your Word. Pray for your help in these things. We pray for that help in the name of the Son of David, the Son of God, our brother Jesus. Amen.